Welcome to Our American Table, the world premiere of Our American Table, the podcast. Before we get underway, please enjoy a little taste of Blind Lemon Jefferson, the father of Texas Blues. I'm broke and ain't got a dime. I'm broke and I ain't got a dime. I'm broke and ain't got a dime. Everybody get to hard This podcast was made possible by the wonderful, amazing, and underappreciated teachers of the world. So how perfect is it that our first ever guest has dedicated most of her adult life to teaching the history, the stories, and the lessons of literature, and the language, the beauty, and the power of the written word. Along that journey, she has certainly taught me much, much more. The oldest of 13 children, a teenage bride, and a mother at 17, few would have imagined what life had in store for this child of the 60s. Left to her own devices at 24, this single mother did what she could to persevere in the face of living as a woman in these United States of America. Leaving her hometown of Detroit, Michigan in the summer of America's bicentennial, she moved to southeastern Wisconsin, where she carved out a new life for her and her young children. Recognizing education as her path to a better life, our guest began taking night classes, eventually going on to earn her master's degree. While studying for college and raising three children, our guest also earned her living in a variety of male-dominated work environments, such as automotive paint sales, lab technician, retiree activities coordinator, and part-time assistant brewmaster, regarded by many Wisconsinites as a dream job. After earning her master's degree, she eventually settled in as a full-time college professor, where she taught at numerous local universities. Our guest then spent the early 2000s at two college campuses, implementing equity-based tutoring programs, and is currently an instructor in the Learning Success Tutoring Program at a local technical college. To say our esteemed guest has had a profound impact on my life would be an understatement. So without further ado, I would like to welcome to our American table, my mentor, my conscience, a lifelong friend, and alas, my mom, Christine McDonald. Hi, mom. Thank you, I'm really honored to be here. Well, thank you. Well, why don't you start by telling the audience a little bit about yourself? Okay. I am the mother of three kids, Eric being the oldest, and my daughter, Karen, and then my youngest, Zachary. I was a very young mother. People are always shocked when I tell them that my oldest, what age he is, and they're like, that's not possible. And I said, well, I was a very, very young mother. And I was at the age of just 17. I also am the oldest of 12 kids, so acted as a mother for much of my life, even when I was young starting at the age of seven, probably, I started taking care of my younger siblings. So it was a, a, it's been kind of a lifelong thing. I have three beautiful grandsons. They're the reward, I guess, in a sense. I finished high school through weird means because I left school when I, was, when I became a mother and came back to school and finished my high school year with a young child, which was very unusual at the time. And then I went on and, and earned a college degree and a master's degree and finished most of my PhD work even as almost something for me to do to prove that I could do that. Now I work as an, I'm an English teacher at a college, although now I run a, a tutoring center at the local community college. So 
Um, it's kind of where my life is right now. So as, as a teacher for all those years, you also wrote a bit. Did, were you ever officially published as a writer? In a couple of different ways. I worked as an editor for a book, a couple of books actually. But one of the books that I worked as an editor for, I wrote a lot of the entries. It was a, an annotated bibliography actually. And I wrote over a hundred of the entries. And so that was my writing that was published. Um, and it's still in publication actually, that book. The other time that I was published was an article that I wrote when my father was dying. I wrote for the local newspaper about my family. So that was published. Other than that, I haven't been published. I, I write often, I still write for myself. And lately during this coronavirus thing, it's become more diary kind of writing, just trying to journal what's going on in, in the world in general and in my life particularly. I only do two types of writing these days right now, particular website. I don't know if you've ever been to the, and I think you have been the daily chaos or daily costs sure. with a membership. You can actually post diaries or stories yourself. And I've done that several times, different things. And I actually posted one yesterday for the madness in Wisconsin. I know that there were lawsuits filed yesterday over it, over oh, for sure. what happened. So those will play out too. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll all be living through it. it, was, it was, <laughs> as, as that woman's sign said, this is ridiculous. It was a horrifying thing to do to the voters. Well, all right, well, back to the interview here. In your story, you were actually married at still 16, correct? I got married when I was 16. And what was your groom, you know, my father, yeah. what was he doing at the time? What were your prospects at the time when you were pregnant with me and marrying your, your love? Well, um, he was working at the wig store. He worked in a, a warehouse that wigs were really a big thing at that time. And so he was working in the store. He eventually started working, setting up stores in other states even and did that for a while. Eventually he got a different job and he started working at, at the meat provision company at Allied's. And that was a really big move for him because that really helped us financially. He didn't make much. I, he was probably making minimum wage, I imagine, at that time, which was like $2.35 an hour. So I think it was $1.80 an hour. Uh, yeah, I didn't think it would be even two thirty-five because yeah. I think three fifteen was minimum wage when I was in 1987, right. 88. Right. So. Right. I think it was 235 when I started working when, when he moved out. Yeah. Um, I think I was making 235 an hour. But when he started, I think it was a dollar eighty an hour. And we were supporting you then eventually and your sister. But by the time your sister came along, I think he was already working at Allied by that time. Yeah, I don't remember anything of of a wig store or anything like that. That's only a, a story I've heard. Um, yeah. I know much about Allied Provision, obviously. And the story right. behind that. But I just wanted to kind of tap into like what your prospects were when you were married with a child. Your husband was working at a wig store. And, and anybody looking back today can understand that there are no wig stores. <laughs> this was, right. It was an right. entire industry that was basically a fad. And, right. and not fad. that there aren't any wig stores in the world, but it is not what it was at that point in time. No, this was really popular. Right. I was still in high school and I would wear wigs to high school. But... The prospects at the time, I mean, it didn't feel like we were, we managed okay. I, and I don't know how. I wasn't working. When was it that we moved into the garage? I'll call it the garage on Merrill Street. Um, I moved in. I was there the day we got married. Yeah, when we got married, we moved into it 
That was yeah. like a wedding gift. Well, it was, it wasn't exactly. My dad helped pay the down payment. It, we bought it on a land contract. We paid $60 a month for yeah. a mortgage, you know, so cost of living was way lower. We had one car. I didn't have a car. So um, during the day, I would just take you out and stroll you around in the stroller. So we didn't have a lot, but, but right. we seemed to have enough. We had a lot of friends, you know, that used to come and visit and hang out with us. We would have meals together and we didn't eat out a lot. When I was pregnant with you, your dad would go across town from Lincoln Park, where we were living then, um, to Detroit, where we where we came from, to the neighborhood where we grew up, to buy me these sausages that that people on my Brightmore Facebook page still talk about. Gillies, this little store, Gillies, that used to have these wonderful Polish sausages, and he would go and get those for me because I would crave them. And your father's family still lived in that neighborhood too, so we would go back there to visit them a lot too. I see. That was Brightmoor. Which is a that very is famous neighborhood in Detroit, actually. Pearson yes. Street in Brightmoor. In going back to that part of town, you know, what did you see happen to Brightmoor as you left Brightmoor? When I was a kid growing up there, even then, there were lots of kids on my street. There were over 20 kids my age right on my block, including your dad and I, and a lot of other kids. Most of the kids were living in rentals. Our house that my parents bought, they bought for $9,000. And it was a big house on a double lot, a three-bedroom house. The neighborhood was really kind of healthy. It was a lower middle-class neighborhood, but a pretty healthy neighborhood at that time, even though we had a lot of those rental properties. And people would kind of move in and out. But even, even the rental properties were pretty stable. They didn't turn over a lot. So those friends that lived in those places, we knew them and they lived there for a long time. So then after I moved away, I would come back. It started to kind of deteriorate a bit, but it wasn't as noticeable until I came back probably 10 years ago, maybe when my aunt died and we decided to go back as a family. We went back to see the neighborhood. All the houses, well, the house next door to us to the corner. There was one, two, three houses to the corner next to us. The house right next door was still there. And the guy that, that lived there when I was a kid was still living there. Most of the houses had been gone. All the rest of the houses to the corner were gone. All the houses across the street were gone. There had been two prefab houses built for low-income housing. We did talk to the people that lived in our house, a family. It was a, a, an African-American family. with some, They had young daughters. And the daughters came out and talked to us um, and asked stories about when we lived there growing up. And they went to the same school that I went to kindergarten. And that school was actually closing for a period of time because they were completely redoing it. So the kids were all going to be bused to another school for a year. And then they redid that school. It now looks like a prison. That was Warren G. Harding. So those houses were all gone. But the neighbor next door, the story he told us, was how he would sit out in front of his house with his little pad of paper watching drug deals and taking down license plates. And when the guy, you know, they, the drug dealers would say, what are you doing, old man? And he'd say, I'm taking down your license plate because I'm going to call the police and report you. And his family kept trying to get him to move away from there because, you know, obviously that probably wasn't really a healthy thing to be doing to challenging the drug dealers. But but he was stubborn about it. He was an ex-military guy, uh, a Navy guy, actually. 
He was there by himself, living alone, doing that. His roof was caved in because a tree had fallen on it. He hadn't gotten it fixed and right. we'll live there. The house where I lived, there were two little pine trees that were like a foot tall when my dad and I planted them. And they're now like 80 feet tall. That was really wow. strange. The house was much more in disrepair. The garage was falling apart. So there was a lot of that in the neighborhood. Even the houses that were there weren't as kept up, you know, because yeah. it's a poor area. Um, well, and I wonder if, if even more so, if people couldn't sell their properties to oh, move out, they just started yeah. renting them. Yeah. And that there's even fewer people that actually own properties there. And it's and if you own a property that's you know disheveled right. when you rent it, what's the purpose in spending five thousand dollars and getting the porch fixed? That makes me think because when you were about five, I did go back and I went back to visit your grandmother when mm -hmm. I was there for a family reunion picnic. I drove into the city to visit your grandmother. And I went down to the corner. There was a house on the corner. And she said that the people still live there and they were people I used to babysit for. So I went down to see if I could visit with them. And the guy that lived there, he was a trucker and over the road trucker. So he didn't really remember me, mm -hmm. although he was the one that first taught me to play the guitar, but he didn't remember me. His wife probably would have remembered me, but she wasn't there. Anyway, he told me his windows were all barred up, you know, and a lot of the houses were already in gone or vacant, right. you know, obviously in the neighborhood. And he said that his house at that point was valued at $4,000. So he couldn't afford to sell it another house because he, right. no, he had no money. Listening to you talk about Brightmore and lining that up with what I know of my father's family history, there was that exposure to Pearson that sort of was the risk to everyone's future. Well, it was, it was the exposure to Pearson and to your grandfather's reality as someone who, who suffered from mental illness. They would have moments of, of economic wealth almost when he was able to work because he was a carpenter and, and could get really well paid when he could work, but he worked so little because he was not well. So that was very difficult, a very difficult life. You were four when they moved out to Plymouth. And I, I could see that exactly as you say it. Your father had some healthy years at the beginning because your your grandfather wasn't ill so much when he was growing up. It was very periodic. In fact, I never saw him be ill until I was pregnant with your sister. So it, it did impact them, but it didn't show as clearly. And it seemed like they had a more, a little more consistent life as he was coming up, but then it kind of fell apart and got really bad. And so that affected those children that were at that formative stage at that point. And then when your grandmother left and took the kids and went to Plymouth, the youngest ones wouldn't be exposed in the same ways. So it was partly your grandfather and influences of the neighborhood, which weren't always healthy. The other interesting thing about Brightmore is that there are still a lot of people that lived there when I was a kid there that are still there. And Brightmore, because, you know, Detroit went through this terrible, terrible economic thing. And the response has been really kind of amazing. The community work, they've taken a lot of those vacant lots and turned them into gardens. They do, do, There's so much urban farming happening in Detroit. It's right. just really astounding. They have restaurants that are local supplied restaurants, which of course, with this coronavirus are going to be really decimated. There's like all kinds of community groups 
that are working together to improve and and bring the city back and not in the same way you know they've, they've come up with a lot of different creative ways to try and maneuver around the fact that the big industries are gone and probably never coming back right. and so they need to use those spaces and to try and re reinvent detroit really and and i know i've seen quite a bit of that i did want to go back i grew up my my father was in the air force as you know and we lived in different places we lived in texas arizona we lived in alaska and then when he got out of the air force we lived in an apartment for a short time and i kind of remember that but i was very young and then they moved into a public housing project so i actually lived in one of detroit's public housing projects for a few years um, do you remember where it was located yeah i know exactly where it is cross streets it's uh linden and evergreen okay so yeah. it could be mapped and it's still there it's still there i yeah. believe i think it's still there and i can't remember the name of the housing project now we just called it the projects growing up when i lived there it was very white there were people of color there but it was not very many it was mostly just poor white people my parents they lived there for a few years and we actually lived in two different buildings there and we moved out of there when i was seven so i lived there for about three years and i have memories from there about what it was and i never felt like i was living someplace that was I was a kid, I didn't know anything, except for the fact that I went to the Catholic school across the street, starting in first grade. And when I did that, nobody that I went to school with there lived in the projects with me. Kind of interestingly, it's all Detroit, but the area around there was actually a nicer neighborhood. It was a more upper class. And, and even some of the people that went to school there were from a, a much more upper class, upper middle class, doctors and psychiatrists and those kind of folks. Because I used to go visit their houses and they lived in amazing houses that I couldn't even imagine people lived in. And that was nearby? Yeah, they were very close. I'm sorry, do you imagine that those projects were even intended and built for primarily oh, poor white down. folks? Put in a position where it wasn't really so accessible even to people that weren't poor white folks? other housing projects in the city that were much more people of color more on the east side we lived in the northwest corner of the city which was probably the newest part of the city edging on dearborn and dearborn at that time was a, a very kind of middle class suburb i left detroit in my early 20s and moved to wisconsin with you and your sister when your father and i separated because my family was here my father had worked at Johnson Wax in Michigan, and then they were closing the warehouse where he worked, and they offered him the opportunity to move his family and to work at the factory here. And he took that opportunity because he had a lot of kids. But they moved here and left me there at the age of 18 with a husband and a small child. Then I was pregnant and had a second child. And so when your father and I separated, I came here because I needed familial support. So I found a job here and, and moved here after about a year. I stayed in Michigan for about a year, but it was hard not having my immediate family. So I came here. Even though I came here in my early 20s, I still consider myself a Motown girl. Detroit, you can leave Detroit, but Detroit never leaves you. I left when I was five and a half. And I always like to say I was born in Detroit and raised in Wisconsin. Speaking of Wisconsin, you mentioned a volunteer program you were involved with. I would love for you to elaborate on that. 
as well as share any thoughts regarding your experience with the program. I was a student at UW Parkside. So as a psych student, one of my human development courses had a requirement to do volunteer work in the community. So I found one of the choices I had was to work in a program that was in Racine, Wisconsin, working with pregnant teenage girls. The way the program worked was when they were in their pregnancy, they would move them out of the school in a special program. And in that program, they would get all of their school stuff, the regular coursework. They would continue that. But they would also have speakers come in and talk about sexual health, nutrition, child care, all kinds of things to help them to learn to become a mother. And then when they delivered, girls would go back to their schools and there was built-in child care for the children while they were in school so they could continue through school. When I started with the program, I worked as a tutor. So I would go to this school where they had it. It was at the annex. It was part of Walden. And I would go to the annex and I would tutor these girls in their schoolwork. But I got to know them and I got to be close to them. And the reason I picked it, of course, is because I was a young teenage girl. And I had to struggle through to get my high school education, being pregnant when I was a junior. But in that program, there was one young girl that I still remember. She was 12 and it was her second pregnancy. That really shocked me. And there was a lot of other things that shocked me because I grew up as a lower middle class girl. We were poor. We had a lot of kids. We didn't have a lot. You know, I didn't have shoes that fit me. I didn't have, I, I wore hand-me-downs from my dad because there was nobody older than me. So I didn't have much that way. But the kind of poverty that those girls were in was a whole different level of poverty that I ever knew. And I remember I gave one of the girls a ride home one night and she didn't really want me to take her home. I went to the hospital to visit her after she delivered and such. You know, I tried to keep contact with the girls even, but it they didn't feel comfortable, but maybe it was even I didn't feel comfortable. I felt guilty almost that I had been able to get through all that with family support, partly because I was a white woman. These students were all Hispanic and Black. So it was just a really eye-opening experience for me. And it really informed my life, my studies, everything since then. I've never forgotten that experience. It had a big impact on me in many ways. Did it make you want to find a way to help? Did you have any interest in that sort of program or that sort of... I actually did. The woman that ran that program, she had it for a long time and it ran through grants, I'm sure. And they stopped it. I talked to her one time after that and she didn't even want to talk about it because I think she saw that as something that had saved lives and people just weren't interested. They didn't want to put their money there. These were young girls and who cares about young black girls or young brown girls. If you look at the data, and I've looked at this data, the population of poverty is always more white than it is black or brown, but it always gets characterized that way. And the same for pregnant teenagers. Sure. It was always more white girls, percentage-wise more white girls. And I think part of it too is other programs or education, some things had really mitigated the problem to some extent. It might've been the opening up of abortion, that abortion was more readily sure. available, that they didn't have as much need for it. I, I don't know what the reasoning was because I was still not aware of a lot of things at that point. I was an older college student, but I was still relatively uninformed about a lot of things. A lot of the issues that we have in Wisconsin today don't seem to line up with the history of Wisconsin because this state has not grown very well as the population has changed. They've, they've sort of maintained a, a real case of cognitive dissonance. Everyone has that whole idea, and even the folks on the so-called left 
have that idealism of progressivism and how that is somehow going to save us all, while if you look at that, there is a whole group of people that are terrified by the progressive movement and all that it brought to Wisconsin in the past, and they don't want that to be repeated. And so there has to be a, a marriage somewhere in between where you let other people into your movement. In order for us as a species, or at least a country, to evolve, we need to repair some of these divides. Because if one set is out to go accomplish goals, at the same time, they're working nearly as hard to try and deny those goals for other groups. I see it as something that will never find its more perfect union unless we address these issues head on. Right. And, and that's part of the American Table's goal, is to try and address some of these issues head on. That movement was more about industrialization. And the other piece of that movement was actually progressive education that was coming out of Chicago. And that's when the University of Wisconsin was founded too, and their ideas about education. The Wisconsin uh, idea. Yeah. And so all of those things happened in that same pool. But the labor part of it especially caused friction because the Europeans that were here, the white Europeans that were here, did not want those jobs being taken over. And that fear has remained with us to this date. The socialist movement of Milwaukee in particular tied in with a lot of what La Follette worked with too. And, and just in the, the absence of any discussion of the black community, it kind of tells you who the socialists were looking out for. That brings to mind two things that they're both Morrison connected, Toni Morrison connected. She writes about American literature and about the absence playing in the dark. In Playing in the Dark, she talks about that. And at the time I was reading that, I was actually reading progressive era literature. In the literature that I was reading, I started seeing that the, the people of color, well, they were always African-American people in, in most of these situations, but they would be absolutely absent or they would appear, but they were never characters that, you know, mm -hmm. so things would happen like they would be rich people and they would go out and walk through their beautiful gardens, but they'd never talk about who actually did the gardening. You'd never see those people. Um, very, very rarely would you see a glimpse of someone. And I, I actually wrote about that when I was in graduate school because it was so obvious to me. Once I saw it, you couldn't mm -hmm. not see it. And, uh, and Morrison, she does, she writes about that in Playing in the Dark. The other instance with Morrison, she wrote a short story that is not in publication. It's not, it doesn't exist anywhere, but she's talked about it. And in her short story, she had two characters, but you never got to learn the race of the characters. And she made it that way on purpose because she knew that you would bring your own implicit bias into the story itself. And she does use that again in, in Paradise. I was reminded about volunteering. The other major volunteering that I did, of course, was working with the study groups in Racine and Kenosha, building that study group program where we would bring together people from all backgrounds for five week period to discuss these really difficult issues. You know, and it went on for a long time. It finally got institutionalized into UW Parkside, into their sociology curriculum. Do it regularly with students. They can still take courses and do that work. The woman that I worked with in, in getting it started, she worked on it for a long time and now she's she retired and, and is not doing that. I think she she still is very active in the community. Her son is the mayor of that was 
another place where working and facilitating those groups and hearing stories that I had never heard because I don't live that life and I don't even know. And the power of those groups was bringing those 10 people together for five weeks and having to listen to each other's stories and understanding how we think the way we do and why we might think that way and how we're all just human beings and that we're really not different in a lot of ways and some fundamental ways. We've just had very different experiences and friendships came out of it. It was, it was really a, an amazing experience just to allow people to tell their stories. And that's how it worked. We each told our story and then the next person would tell their story. And then we would talk about the stories, how they related to each other and, and so on. And one of the most memorable stories I have was a woman whose son wanted to be a, a, a plumber's apprentice. His grandfather had been a plumber and he got all of his grandfather's tools and he kept applying for apprenticeship programs and they would not take him on. And she said she believed it was because he was about a six foot five, very dark African-American guy. And none of the plumbing companies wanted, the businesses wanted to take him in because they couldn't see sending him out to somebody's house. And so they would not allow him to come and work with them. And that reality, and I understood how it was working, why the businesses felt that way even, and, and why, because they understood the cultural impact, but yet it continued. And there was no law against it. There was nothing he right. could do to right. make them take him. And it was, it was extremely sad and painful. He cried. I remember her crying because her son could not do what he wanted to do. And, and as a mother, that was really hard for me to hear. Can you recall any moments from these discussions where a bridge was built to cross one of these divides, giving the participants something constructive to apply to their own lives in a positive way? After the first round of groups that had done them, we had a, uh, at the end of the year, we had a big celebration dinner. And at that dinner, one of the young men that got up to speak, he was probably in his late 20s, maybe. He was a police officer in Kenosha. And he was an African-American police officer. And he talked about how growing up, you know, every day he got up and he had to think how he was going to get survive the day. And one of the guys that had been in the very first group that I had facilitated had a really hard time. He was a white guy in his 40s, 50s. He owned his own computer repair business. And it was very difficult for him to get the perspectives. I right. mean, he just couldn't get outside of his own reality at all. Through that five-week period, we really struggled trying to help him to see things so that he could understand and hear what other people were saying. It was a real struggle during that first study circle to get him to kind of hear other people. He kept trying to push back and make right. excuses. Right. But in that dinner, after that guy spoke, he got up and spoke and he said, I suddenly realized I have never in my entire life woke up in the morning and wondered how I was going to survive the day. It's never happened to me. It was like this light bulb went on for him. And I wonder how that one moment has stayed with him in some permanent way. It's very difficult because once you start having an understanding of that, it's still easy to withdraw into your white person world because we just have this fear that's instilled in us from all over. I mean, I grew up with it in Detroit and 
and have worked most of my life to to counter it in my head to really counter that story and that's what led me to my studies i believe when i started the first time i read the first exposure i really had to african-american literature was maya angelou reading her biography or her autobiography and reading that and realizing her experience was so different than my experience i i was I was so taken aback. I was probably still in my 20s when I read that. And I was so taken aback because I was well into adulthood and didn't understand that. Right. And that was my first exposure. And then I wanted to read more of that perspective. And that's what led me to African-American literature. And I believe my need to try and help is what led me to teaching. Allowing <clears throat> students to find a way through education was a way I could help. I've been experiencing it this week. There's a woman that's been tutored this week who started, she's an older, she's a grandmother. I don't know how old she is, African-American woman, but she's older. She's trying to finish her degree. And she came into this technological, you know, this virtual world that's not comfortable for her. She was struggling with her math class, trying to, you know, come in. And every time after she finishes a tutoring session now, she comes out of the session and she's like, she can't contain herself with how happy she is that she's able to understand it. This platform actually works better for her than the face-to-face tutoring yeah. because the tutors have learned that they can leave her alone and they can come out of the breakout room and say, well, just work on this for a little bit and we'll come back. Right. And then she has to work on it by herself right. and she's doing it. When they're face-to-face, it's hard for them to walk away. And I think that's what we're seeing with her. And she has just been, she even said, I really like math. She's gotten to that point where she's finding so much pleasure in solving the problems. And it's been wonderful to watch. And even to the point where she put her daughter off to babysit her granddaughter or a grandchild, I don't know, a baby, because she had to finish her work first, which was a really strong statement for her to be doing that, prioritize her education because this education is going to really bring something, not just to her, but to her children and her grandchildren. She has been my shining star every time I talk to her and I've seen her a lot and she's just really, really happy because this is working and she's making progress. She said, I did nine, I did 10 problems all by myself and I only got one wrong and she was thrilled. You've often told stories about students having to deal with a myriad of difficult circumstances along their journey. Could you speak to this in a personal way? I remember when I was in graduate school and I lived in this rental and I remember I was trying to study for my oral exams for my master's degree. It was a very intense study period and I couldn't sleep at night. My bedroom window kept banging all night and it would keep me awake and I couldn't, and it really affected that experience. And I reflected on that and thought about people who live in, you know, rattling windows and and, or, or windows that are broken or, um, or are working three jobs trying to support their family. Or I always remember I had a college student once who came in and he was a very bright guy. And he, he told me about, because his, his ACT score was quite low. And I asked him about it. I said, what was your experience when you took your ACT? And he said, well, honestly, he said it was at the library on Humboldt and right there, that apartment building you were talking about. Locust in the MLK. And it was that library. 
and it was in the summer. Martin Luther King. Yeah, whatever, Loc right? Locust and Martin Luther King right there. Yeah. That's the one I had gone to. We were talking about it. Yes. That library, he was in that library taking his tests on a Saturday. And because it was so hot and they had no air conditioning, they had all the windows open. And that is a very busy intersection. Right. And he said the noise from outside was so distracting. I eventually just gave up on the exam. I couldn't, I couldn't even think. <clears throat> and I said, that makes sense. And I understood the situation. That was his one chance. And it was just impossible. You know, there's so many things that we don't even think about that are regular everyday experiences for students. In working with students, I spent a lot of time because I always taught freshmen English. So I spent a lot of that time bringing in works that could reflect on that, their own experience, sure. help them understand how to navigate it. We would have writing we would do to help them. And it wasn't just students of color because I had poor white students, too because we had a, a very low income base at the, the college where I worked and the college I work at now. And their experiences are not the ideal education experience, even the experience they're living in in the current world. I have students now who live, you know, they're married and they've got young children and their spouses don't understand why they have to spend all this time studying and they can't take care of the house and cook dinner and take care of the kids. And and a lot of them fall out because of it, because we can't give them all the support they need. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a tough story, but it's a very rewarding when you can see students figure out a way to navigate it, however yeah. they can, because it's going to empower them. My job as a as a first year college teacher was to help students. I figured this out at some point early on in my college teaching career that if I could get students to find a way to make the topic interesting to them. That's all I needed to do. And they would take off. And most of the time I was really successful with it. And I taught writing classes and those were the ones that the students hated that class. They did not want to have to be writing essays, but I would find, I would pick the readings that we would do that would perhaps engage them. I learned to teach by tutoring first. And I really think that that made all the difference for my teaching because it's about trying to figure out what works for each individual student, how you can get into their head. Sometimes I had to pick certain ones because it was required of the program I was in, but I would try to, even in that, I would try to play with it as much as I could and then bring them something that they could bite into and hang on to. And that's where, when I was able to pick everything myself, I started picking authors that were more like them, that were people that they could identify with who had gone through some of the things they had been through. And then they could understand it better and be more in, engaged. It was always a struggle though. And that was the thing. If I could see that, that moment when students start learning for learning's sake, instead of feeling like they just got to do something to get through it, I knew I didn't have to worry about them anymore. I can still remember those moments from many, many years ago with very particular students where in class one day that thing just happened and they started making the connection to all of their learning, like classes that seemed completely not related. They would start connecting them because they understood it was all about the bigger picture. And, and then I didn't have to worry about them anymore. I had one that was a really, really bright light bulb came on in class one day with this beautiful young woman. She was tall she still looks like a model. I mean, I'm still a Facebook friend with her, but 
she was in my class and she had one of those light bulb moments in my class. It was a post-colonial literature class and, and all of a sudden everything made sense to her. And that was really cool. She would come and talk to me. She was in a different discipline. She was in communications, not in English, but she would come to me and talk to me often, even after she was out of my class. And then when she graduated, she came to talk to me about a job. She had two job offers. And one job offer was to go to this work in a hospital and be a communications person there. And it was starting at like $45,000 a year. It was a really nice job and everything. Um, the other job that she was offered was to work for NPR or a public radio. It wasn't NPR, but it was the Milwaukee Public Radio. Mm -hmm. And she would work as a production assistant. It was part-time and it was really low pay. And I said, well, I can't tell you which job to take. You have to weigh where you're at. I do know that you still live at home right. and you have the ability. So you do have a choice in some sense to go to the thing that you really think you'll love. And she took the radio job and she worked for that for a while. And I didn't hear from her for quite a while. And then she contacted me one day. She got a hold of me through email probably. And she was working for Oprah at that point in Chicago. But she invited me. She got two tickets for me to come down to the Oprah show. I did shake Oprah's hand and watched her put on her Christian Louboutin shoes because she comes in barefoot and then puts her shoes on after she sits down. She was very nice. It was a it was a really interesting show. Then we got to tour the radio station afterwards and have lunch with my students. And it was very nice. Several times in your life, beginning with when you you know wanted to be an artist and were convinced that there wasn't a career, it's striking to me that a lot of the things that you mentioned where you were counseled and told things and everything and who directed things was your father. Right. You know, I was a young single mother. First college course I took was art and I excelled in it. I was really good at it and I loved it. It was where my light bulb came on. But my father said, Christine, you have two young children to support. You can't go this way. You have to find, you have to get an education that's going to get you a job. And my father wasn't a college educated person. He right. didn't understand. He didn't understand that there were jobs in the art world. And some of them were even kind of like regular jobs, even right. graphic design and, and things. I didn't know either because I didn't have any insight into that. I just knew I loved doing it. I was a chemistry major for a while because I was working at Johnson Wax. Then I, then I changed jobs there and went into human resources. So they wouldn't pay for chemistry really anymore. And I had failed my calculus class because I didn't understand how I was supposed to succeed in calculus. So I switched to psychology because they would pay for psychology courses because human resources people are usually psychology people. And then I was an English and psychology major. The last class I took was on the psychology of evil. So it was about serial killers. And I just couldn't deal with that because that was like too much evil. I couldn't, I couldn't look at that. It really disturbed me. So I thought, no, this is not what I want. So then I just dropped that major and stayed with English. It allowed me to read and write. So I got a lot of pleasure out of that, even when I didn't want to do it. What's um, funny about that is that when you wrote in there that, you know, the idea of writing for a living, I mean, to be a teacher, I, I could see if it's like, eventually that's like the, be a teacher. right. No, I know. And that's what I mean. What's funny is because you wrote yeah. in there that, you know, you, you imagine you could write for a living. That was where I was past 
my father's influence. I was living with my father still when he said that. Right. I, I had brought my children to Wisconsin. I was living with my parents. Yeah. So I think he was trying to push me out and say, you got to get on your own. You got to find a job. And I was working when when your father left. I, I had to find a right. job. So I was just 19, 20 when I started working. And I've worked since. But he wanted me to have be able to have a good job and do that. You know, he, he knew that the education was important, but he thought what I was trying to do was stupid. And I didn't know how to counter that. So I think the idea of going into English and writing because I loved writing and I knew I was really good at it. I still didn't know how to do it, though, how to get into the writing field, because I didn't know I could teach college either, because I didn't understand. I, I don't know what I thought. And this is it sounds so stupid when I think about it. But here I was, I was 37, and I still didn't understand how college professors became college professors. I thought that that was like some separate thing that people did. I didn't even understand how that happened. I didn't understand how you got to graduate school. I didn't know anything about graduate school. And I didn't have college teachers who fostered that for me. Being a female, the male professors that I know were helping male students and even later, when I was in my career as a teacher, my male colleagues, the administrative people in my department, would help the male new people, not the female people, to understand how to make things work. So that was a reality that I didn't even understand. But I didn't know how to do it. I had three experiences in my final semester of college. I was doing an internship with a teacher as kind of a helper in the classroom, in a writing classroom. And he decided one day, he called me up the night before class and said, I don't feel well, so you're going to have to teach the class tomorrow. So I stayed up half the night preparing to teach this class. And it was teaching a poem, of all things, which I wasn't really my strength in school. I did poetry. You know, I took poetry classes and stuff, but I struggled with poetry a bit. And it was ironic that the poem that I was reading was called it's a metaphor in nine syllables that's what it's called and now the poet's name is escaping me and this is i'm sorry it's, it's a very important poet anyway so her poem is about it's about pregnancy and that's the nine syllables the nine months i had gone over and over the poem i had researched i knew what i was going to talk about i sat on the front of the desk because i was so nervous I had to anchor myself, so I sat on the desk to teach the class and had a wonderful discussion of the poem. And that was why I was really scared, because students have a hard time with poetry. So, And it's a poem that you can really kind of get into for a discussion. It's a good poem for that. But uh, we had a great discussion. And I always said I didn't come down for three days. When I left that classroom, I, I, I couldn't believe how it made me feel to do what I had done in that class that day. And I had two other experiences that semester where I was doing presentations because I was at that senior level. So I had a lot of big presentations that I did on, mm -hmm. on topics. Those experiences helped me to understand that I had something in me that I could convey to a group of people right. and help them to understand. And, and I knew it was a gift that I had. I'd never recognized it before, never thought about being a teacher because I always thought about teaching little kids and I'm not really patient with little kids. So I never had, that did not appeal to me at all. I never realized I could teach adults until that semester. 
and then my teachers kept saying, well, are you going to go on and teach English? Is that what you're going to do? And I kept saying, no, 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 until I finally found out that I can go to grad school and I could actually do this. That's what I had to do. I had to go on to graduate school to be allowed to do it. And when I figured that out, that's the direction I took. But I'm coming back to art late in my life now. And I realize at this point in my life, I probably never would have enough life left to actually get to the point where I could even make a living doing it because I have so much to learn about it still. Art, like many things, if it's something that actually matters to you, it's also hard to do because you don't want to fail at it. And I have to get myself to understand that that's where you learn. And I know that about learning, that failure is the learning part, but it's hard to put myself out there, even if it's only for me. If I do it poorly, then then that's a reflection. Oh, you're really not good enough to do this. At 66 years old, I'm still struggling with that idea of you're really not good enough to do this. The difficulty for me, and art would kind of be the same way, I guess, but in, in a sense, the writing is the protective nature of wanting to keep your innermost personal secrets and stories and stuff like that innermost and personal and secret. Right. But yet to really kind of reflect in your writing and to really kind of right. maybe be honest to the reader and things like that, there are times when you have to sort of let these things out. And that's, that's a difficult thing, not specifically for me, like it's unique, but I find that is one of my things that's kind of difficult to sort of just talk about. Right. Or, or write about in that sense. And I get that. For me, the kind of writing that I love, I always wanted to write about my family, for instance. And my father really wanted me to do that. He did champion. He wanted me to do that. Oh, you should write about your family. You should write about your family. What he wants me to write about is just the good things. Exactly my point. And as a writer, I couldn't do that. Right. That's not how art works. In the written word, there are things I did not feel it was right for me to write about, that I could expose other people to things that would it wouldn't be fair for me to do that, or it would cause pain for others. And I couldn't find a way around that, which is one of the reasons I've started many times to write those narratives. And I had to stop because I yeah. could not write. And there is one way I think I could do it. And I did start trying that, but then I got distracted by life probably and divorce or some craziness in my life because I have had one crazy life that I stopped doing it. But it is the one kind of place where it's almost, it reminds me of if you read incidents in the life of a slave girl, they are snapshot images. Now in her portrayal, they are horrific images and they were done that way for a purpose to try and get people to understand the overwhelming impact of slavery. The way I would be doing it would be kind of the reverse almost and just snapshotting the really amazing kind of stories and funny stories. Because, I mean, in our family, you've heard many of those stories that we tell at the table that are just so, we just, we tell them over and over again. There are family stories and we laugh and laugh still because it was so crazy and funny. And I mean, even things that were like almost tragic that right. almost happened, but right. they didn't. And, and how looking back, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe that we survived that. Those kind of stories I would be okay telling, but then there are other parts of our family story that I couldn't tell. I don't feel it's my right to tell. 
exposing things that are, you know, painful and things like that, whether it be me or my life and people within my life. That's always been kind of a difficult thing. And you can write that way or you can do fiction. The, and, the, and the beauty of fiction, and I have thought, I, because fiction is not something I ever wrote. I wrote one fictional story in my life, I think. Most of my writing was always non-fictional. So to try and write fictionally, it would be a whole different way of me thinking. Right. But that's what I knew if I could take those things and put them into fiction. But I think there are two sides to the fiction story. For the writer, you can do that. If you're able to fictionalize things, you can make that happen. If you read things in fiction, and this is where I find and, and why I'm so attracted to fiction and literature because I think literature, people can read it and read about things that are very difficult and still have that little bit of distance of safety that will protect their emotional <laughs> self enough right. to be able to grapple with it. And you can bring things out. And that's where I think Morrison does that really well. And that's one of the reasons I like Morrison so much. Maya Angelou, actually, in her autobiography, that autobiography is not fiction. And it tells a lot of harsh realities. And I remember reading that. And I think that's where I got inspired to write the way I do, was reading her work and realizing that you can tell your own story. But I can't bring myself to do that because right. of all the other reasons we've talked about. In your career choices, I saw that you went through the art stage and then you went into school to be the writer and then the teacher. But you said early on, the dream that was crushed is that you couldn't be a nun or yes. a missionary nurse? There's a whole part to this story because I wanted to get a college education from a young age, but couldn't even imagine how that could ever happen. Nobody I knew went to college. I didn't. Right. I had no understanding of it, except one day, and I think this is why I wanted to be a nun, actually. A nun came to school to talk to us about religious be, becoming a nun, talked to all the girls. All the girls came. You know, we were down the basement and she showed films, videos of nuns swimming and, and just being normal people, which was funny because when I was in, in grade school, my first years in grade school, I thought nuns didn't have feet. I never saw their feet. So I thought they rolled, they had wheels and they just rolled around. <laughs> I thought they had no feet. It was really strange until I found out they had feet because they wore, you know, mm -hmm. really long, long robes. Yeah. So, yeah. And I never saw their feet anyway. So she, she came in and she told us, you know, you, you can also go to college and they'll pay for you to go to college and you can become a nurse and you can go out and you can be a nurse missionary nun and go to other countries and travel and do all these. And I thought, oh my God, this is the answer. I think that's where it started. I started saying I was going to become a nun. Well, of course, I was in a Catholic family. My father's first cousin was a, a missionary priest. Mm -hmm. My great uncle, my grandfather's brother was a monsignor. You know, so there were religious orders in our family. Then I became that chosen person in my generation. I was going to be a nun. And I was in eighth grade and I still thought I was going to be a nun. And I remember my teacher telling us that children born out of wedlock were not allowed to take religious orders. It wasn't even true, but that's what she told us. I didn't understand what out of wedlock really even meant. And I kind of conflated it with being pregnant before you get married. So then I just stopped. And it's really interesting because to that point, 
even though I had friends who were pretty wild since the age of 11, I, I still was holding myself to being a nun and being a good girl and all those things. But once that nun thing dropped to the wayside, then boys were a possibility. So that changed my life right there too. I mean, I can't say that I would have stayed in that path and never would have ventured off to discover boys or that that discovery would have gone to the length it did or, or anything. I don't know. Right. I don't know what would have happened. But I know that I remember that day in that classroom. I can still see her saying that. So that just fell by the wayside. Yeah. That's where that Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken, when you make a choice or what, however the choice happens and you take a certain path, there is nothing to be gained by looking at what could have been. I've kind of thought about that Robert Frost poem and made a point to like have a copy of it and then read it and then just ask you a question or two about it. So I'll read it really quickly. I told you I'm reading a lot of poetry now because I can't <clears> focus on reading long work, whole thing going on. So I've been reading a lot of poetry, which has been wonderful. I didn't go back and read that poem after I was thinking about it. I was just going out of what I remembered of it. It made me feel, but go ahead. The road not taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So in thinking about that, as the poem suggests, do you take the poem and tend to sort of champion the road less taken if your choice was that choice? I think I do champion the road less taken because I never wanted to be afraid in life of doing something that I thought I wanted to do, how I felt I could realize my life in any way. I often took the path that seemed like the kind of radical path, but it turned out that wasn't really the radical path. The radical path would have been to not get married in the first place. That would have been the radical path to keep my child, especially at that time, to keep my child and not get married would have been the radical path. At the time, I felt I was being radical by getting married at the age of 16, but that wasn't truly the radical path. I, I want to be someone in my life who is not afraid to do what I believe is the right thing to do. And so I've done that pretty much my whole life. I've made a lot of mistakes and I've done things that were wrong, that I knew were wrong even when I did them. I'm not saying that I never made mistakes, but... I really strove to try and do things that were going to be the better thing to do for whatever reason, whether better for me, better for my kids, better for my family, better for my world, whatever it was. I took selfish paths often, things that were better for me, but not maybe better for my kids or definitely not better for my kids. I mean, I did those things, 
the idea of the poem, I mean, it has meanings of itself. I mean, when you look at it and you think about the road less traveled, did you do that because you just wanted to be different? Did you do that because you wanted to be an adventure? Did you do that because you wanted to be brave? There are a lot of ways to interpret that. Or did you really even do that? <laughs> or did you really even do that? Yeah. The way I think about the poem is kind of in a, in a less reading the poem kind of way that in my life there have been, and in everybody's life, you can take different paths all the time. Once I had a class and it was all white students except for this one African-American male student. I told them up front that they, I would give them three days to write things, but then after that they had to hand in all their work typewritten or keyboarded. You know, they had to do it on the computer because I couldn't read students' handwriting. And so I said, I that's what I require. So when the students handed in their assignment, I said, I'll give you, you know, some grace. So the first assignment they handed in, every student that hand wrote it, I said, this is the last time I will accept a handwritten assignment. You have to go and redo this and type it and then turn it back into me and then I'll give you credit. But until then you have a zero. So I handed the assignments back, all the class left and he stayed. And it was like the third day of class. And he comes up to my desk and he starts yelling at me. He said, why are you picking on me? That's what he said. Why did you single me out to do this, to fail me for this? And I, I looked at him and I said, you weren't the only one that got that. Other students also turned in handwritten work and I gave them the same, I said the same thing to them. And he stopped and he looked at me and he realized, because I knew what he was thinking, even if he didn't say it. And he looked at me and I think it was, it was actually an earth shattering moment for him too. It was a business writing class and I helped him with his writing and he actually improved dramatically during the class. And then he was out of my class years later, three years later, cause that was, he was, he would have been a sophomore then. So maybe two or three years later, he comes in, he comes to my office and I was in a different job by that time, but he sought me out and he found me. I didn't know why he was there. And I thought, okay, you know, because we ended up on a good right, turn right, after right. That, that day. But he came to my office and he's, I'm going to get choked up on this because it was, he came to my office and he said, I want to tell you that if it hadn't been for you, I don't know that I ever would have finished college. He said, you were the most important and most impactful teacher that I had at this school. And if it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't be leaving in two days to go to South America to do an internship because I believe in myself, but I did not believe in myself before you believed in me. It was, and, you know, and students don't often come back and tell you stuff like that. And I don't expect it. I never right. expected it. Right. I mean, it happened to me a few times in my life, but that time, because I didn't even think anything of what had happened in that class after that day. We just went forward and I just treated him the way, you know, I've worked with him like I work with all my students. But for him, I made all the difference in his life. And I, and I, the weight of that, the responsibility of that was kind of awing. And it was what I wanted to do with my life and why I was doing what I was doing. But to hear that from him that day was confirmation that I really had chosen the right thing to do. The one part of that poem that I think always spoke to me was 
understanding how way leads to way, I will probably never come back. Once you take that path, it leads to something and something and something. I can never go back to that original art class and right. start there and go in a different direction because I've already gone a million miles the other way. So that that's the part of that poem that I think has always been the most important part of it to me. But I also think not maybe even the way that Robert Frost meant it, that there are constantly choices being made and that they make a difference. The day that that student came up to me and started attacking me, I could have attacked him right back. I am grateful to this day that I shut my mouth and listened to him long enough to understand why he was doing it and then responded in the way I did. I have another experience like that. When I very, very first started teaching, very early in my teaching career, I don't think it was the first class I taught, but it was probably like the second class or maybe third class I ever taught. And I had this young African-American kid come into my <laughs> class who was right out of high school. Like, you know, I knew he was really young. And the first week of class, he came to class the first maybe two days. And then he missed like three days of class in the first week of class. And I thought, what? Why is he doing? You know, and I immediately, all my biases came in. And this is one where I saw the biases in my head later. And I was really mad at him because I thought, the hell, you can't just not show up for class. And then when he did come back to class, the day he came back, he fell asleep in class. And I was like really mad at him. So I made him stay after class that day because I was going to yell at him and say, you know, if you're not going to be bothered with this class, don't even bother coming because right. I, I, I was really, I was affronted by it that right. he would act like that to me. I don't know what possessed me to not say those things right out of the gate. I said to him, what's going on? That's all I said. And I gave him the floor and he said, I'm so sorry, but my mother died. And my whole, it was just like that student with me. It was a, right. it flipped. Right. My whole world flipped. And I realized that I had made all of these assumptions, mm. some of them based on his race, right. on his age, on his, whatever I was judging about him or thinking about him, mm -hmm. that he didn't care about school. And here's this kid just out of high school who just lost his mother. Right. Obviously right. meant a lot to him. And I was so grateful for that moment early in my teaching career because it's what helped me probably later when that student attacked me. I learned to just wait a moment, take a breath before I reacted. I don't even know why I did it that first time though. I yeah. still don't, but I'm so grateful I did because that made all the difference. Those little things that happen in a, in a heartbeat. And sometimes you make the right choice, sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's selfish, sometimes it's just stupid, sometimes it's just uninformed, whatever it is. Sometimes it's hormones, you know, whatever it is, or need to be loved or whatever forms makes you do that or, or helps it to happen. But I don't regret most things that I've done. I'm sorry about things. There are things I'm very sorry that I've done in my life, they affected other people, especially my children. But I can't regret the paths I took because I can't go back. My feeling now in life is to just try and continuously work on myself to just keep being a better person, just in general. And, and it's a constant battle. That brings us to our intermission. I hope you've been enjoying the conversation as much as I have. If you've noticed the lack of focus on the latest tweet, meme, or celebrity couple news, our American Table, the podcast, is doing its job. 
However this program evolves, one thing is certain. I will continue to move beyond the trees staring all of us in the face and will instead explore the forest that produced and nurtured the trees that we human beings tend to focus so much attention upon. To put you in the right frame of mind before we get back to our discussion, I'd like to introduce you to the Reverend F.W. McGee. I sure hope you enjoy this foot stomping rendition of 50 Miles in Elbow Room. Feel free to get up and dance. gears a bit and ask a few questions about something most folks that make up our American table would rather avoid. What faith or religion was grandma prior to marrying grandpa? She was Protestant. It was um, Protestant. Okay. Great grandma was, was a raised, Protestant. Actually her mother, she used to take her to tent meetings, revivals. I don't know what kind of religion, you know, or if she had a particular, I think right. she more identified with aunt queen's religion. It's a, which was some for, form of Episcopalian or something. I don't know, Presbyterian, something. Sure. Um, they weren't Baptists, I don't believe. Um, I don't even know because I was Catholic and we couldn't even talk about other religions. So right. when I was growing up, so I have no idea. 
And I only, I only ask that because again, it kind of went back to the paternal control in a sense. And that, and that's one that society expected. It was uh, that's very and... much part of society and my mother's upbringing too. Yeah, go Religion ahead. was a big part of my growing up because we were very Catholic and all of that, and me being a nun. And I did participate in, in the Catholicism all the way up until when your brother was born. And I left there. I ended up, we ended up joining the Unitarian Universalist Church. We attended all through Zach's growing up. And then when Tim left, I, we, we kind of had gravitated apart from there even before he left. So I hadn't been. And I went back once just recently. It felt kind of nice and kind of weird and whatever, because I always felt even in that church, that was part of the problem. I never felt like I belonged. Like I, I couldn't, I couldn't find a way to kind of integrate with the people because I can't do that friend thing. So I, I could be friendly with them, but I couldn't be friends with them. So when I went back, it was nice to see people. And I saw people that I knew from before and everything. But then of course this all happened and I never got back again. So my understanding with faith and organized religion is the community sense of it. People have loss, people have difficulty, and, and there's nothing like a group of people that will be around to buoy you Absolutely. up and, and help you through those times. The quote-unquote strings attached were, were unattractive enough to not be willing right. to sacrifice one thing for another in a sense. So I've often always had that sense of like kind of disconnect from a lot right. of people and, and from any sense of community. But, but at the same time, I found that in my looking at things and understanding of things, and once I had kind of determined what I was going to believe and or not believe, is it always seems to have given me more of a clarity, I think, as much as anything else. It's just because there's not any kind of like, there's no third party in control of things. It's kind of like what I see in front of me and what I understand happens in, in the way our life goes is pretty much what everyone else understands. So it's like, I don't have to go, well, that's what brought it about. You know, it's like, no, you can see that this happened and this happened. And as a result, that's what happened. I see another reason. And, and specifically, I saw, I remember with my friend, my friend who lost his brother, when, when he lost his brother, we had had lots of conversations kind of thinking along the same lines and questioning things because he was raised very Catholic and his, his mother was a real strong influence. And, and we heard a lot about it from her as we were teenagers in her house, you know, about how we needed to get on the straight and narrow and things like that. But, but I remember when his brother passed, he, he sort of went 180 degrees back to the church. And I sort of started imagining that more than anything else, he wanted to believe so that he could imagine he would see his brother again. Because without the belief in, in heaven and afterlife and all that, he was just gone. He right. saw whatever he saw in the, the mortuary, if he chose to. And once he was lowered into the ground, that was it. He'd never see him again. And, right. and I kind of came to that thought process of, you know, that's what I believe myself. I never asked him. I never challenged him why he returned to the church and all these things. But in my own head, it, it became a pretty convincing reason why he would latch on, you know, and understandably, I had never had that experience. So I understood that. But after that, it allowed me then understanding that if I'm going to, if I'm going to stay with my path, when that comes to me, I'm just going to have to deal with it differently. And right. I think maybe because Craig died before grandma, that it was probably uncle Craig, but, but, but certainly 
Grandma Fanning. But but when they passed, I remembered kind of specifically, and with Grandpa, your father, Grandpa McDonald, it was the same thing, years removed, of course. But what I found myself doing is I have like one big, long, like healthy cry. And then I'm okay with it. I mean, in a sense, because it's life and this is what happens in life. And, right. and, and another part of it is too, is I find myself better able to see our common ground with just the rest of the animal kingdom. How special are we to not believe that the mule deer has a soul and right. has a heaven and all these things? I mean, we don't credit them with any of these things. And yet all this is for us is just another little step in evolution. I want to read something to you. This is Mary Oliver again, and it's called I Happen to be Standing. I don't know where prayers go or what they do. Do cats pray while they sleep? Have to sleep in the sun? Does the opossum pray as it crosses the street? The sunflowers? The old black oak growing older every year? I know I can walk through the world along the shore or under the trees with my mind filled with things of little importance in full self-attendance, a condition I can't really call being alive. Is a prayer a gift or a petition? Or does it matter? The sunflowers blaze, maybe that's their way. Maybe the cats are sound asleep, maybe not. While I was thinking this, I happened to be standing just outside my door with my notebook open, which is the way I begin every morning. Then a wren in the privet began to sing. He was positively drenched in enthusiasm. I don't know why, and yet, why not? I wouldn't persuade you from what you believe or whatever you don't. That's your business. But I thought of the wren singing. What could this be if it isn't a prayer? So I just listened, pen in the air. So it's kind of that idea that I don't know. I mean, we haven't been able to find that kind of sentience in animals in the same way that we value sentience. I, I used to say I was spiritual, but I don't even think that's true. I find myself grounded in the world that I am. So the beauty and the horror, the sadness, the joy, the family, the gaining, the loss, the decision, everything. That's what it's all about. I don't know what would hearten me. And I think of my friend who lost her daughter when she was two and how she's dealt with that in her life, which I think has been a turn to faith, but I don't really know. I, I can't say how I would deal with it. I might just go off the deep end somewhere to back to church. I long for, for incense sometimes. I really do, especially this time of year, because this is the time when it would come out. The traditions and the pomp and circumstance of the Catholic Church, I miss those traditions because I lived with them for much of my life. Even though it's been much more of my life, I haven't had them. Coming from Detroit, it's always in my heart. I think the church in some way or some part of it is still there for whatever reason. But there's the part of it I don't believe in at all. And I don't really believe in the idea of heaven. And I feel like this is my heaven and my hell. And that's the reality of it. I don't feel like it's another place and that I have to grapple with the hell part of it and be there present for the heaven part of it.
And that's the way I believe. So it's always going to be a struggle because it is. We're human beings and that's how we struggle. From the start of my understanding of the world, when I was very young, I remember laying on the ground. I was probably six or seven, looking up at the blue sky and thinking, this is a blue sky, but it's what I see as a blue sky. Maybe other people actually see it green but they call it blue because we've all agreed that's blue but we don't all see it the same way and i came to understand it later that it was actually a philosophical thought it wasn't really about the color it was about knowing that people experiencing things differently it was much bigger than the actual thought i was having as a child because i wasn't <clears throat> capable of that big of a thought but but even that i thought that back then i was already starting to understand this, even though I was still very much enmeshed in, in religion at that time. Well, and to and, think really quickly is the idea of perspective. Think about how people within the same nation view the American flag. You can look at that flag and think all of these positive aspects of America and, and the red, white, and blue and the stars and stripes and the, the banner and, and, and all these things. And yet other people see that as the flag that oppresses them. That, right. that is the right. sign of their oppression. And to make room for that, your viewpoint right. is not everybody's viewpoint. I don't know what shaped me as a person in some ways because I am very different than most of my siblings. I have one, maybe two, that kind of agree with me wholeheartedly. One that does wholeheartedly that I know. And I have friends, the friends I do have, and some work people that I've worked with in the past that I still consider friends that are like-minded like me and that I can have these conversations with. But I think it's particularly difficult when I talk to my educated siblings, and most of them are educated. Seven of us graduated from UW-Parkside, which is really astonishing being first-generation college student. But to talk to my siblings, and especially those who have even higher educations, and not be able to reason with them is really frustrating because they're intelligent people. And I know they're even caring people, but their blindness to things is just horrifying sometimes to me. I don't know why I came out different. I tried to figure that out, why I'm different. I think there are a number of factors. Some of my siblings were in the military, officers in the military. And I think that that affected them in some profound ways, particularly my brother, who's a physician. He was very much about social justice and open to a lot of ideas when he was in college. When he went off into the military, he saw different things and I think it colored the way he saw the world. Then when he got out of the military and became a physician, civilian physician, where he was making money and creating a really nice life, traveling all over the place and doing things with his family and buying a beautiful house and, and all the things he's been able to do that way in his life. I think that also affected the way he saw things. He, he traveled in circles of more wealth and that need to protect your wealth means that you have to keep it out of the hands of someone else. And I think that affected him. And I think that's similar for a number of my siblings. We all, we grew up poor. I was the oldest. 
So I experienced that kind of poverty for a much longer period than they did because my parents eventually became more and more well off and joined more of the middle middle class, I would say, and were able to travel around the world, were able to take beautiful vacations, were able to buy a nice house. And the younger children benefited from that also. They went to private high schools, they had more clothes, they had shoes on a regular basis. I mean, it was a very different kind of experience for them. So I, I think they had a harder time identifying with those who don't have. I've always felt I really identify with people who don't have. And other people do, even people who have wealth. I'm not saying that, that they can't, but I think it's much, much harder. I'm going to kind of go back to the Bible, which is really strange because I'm not a religious person per se. The idea that it's easier to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for someone with wealth to get into heaven, meaning that recognition that wealth can really color the way you are because if you hang on to that wealth, again, you have to keep it from someone else. And you have to justify it, why other people aren't wealthy and why you are and why it's okay that you are and somebody else isn't. There has to be a reason because you're a good person. So if they were really a good person too, they'd be able to be wealthy also. And it's easier to negate all of the socio-cultural norms that, that keep people from, from gaining wealth. I think that had a lot to do with that. I think the other thing is religion. I'd like to take a moment to back up a bit and ask how your experience living as a child in Detroit's public housing projects may have impacted you. The Smith Homes. Smith Homes, and now it's the Detroit Housing Commission? Right. If you Google it, it's called the Detroit Housing Commission. It looks very different now than when I lived there. They've rebuilt all of those buildings, so they look like condos. And my question to that was, is what I noticed in your description of, or your recollection reflected your time there, is that you noticed more what you didn't have in that you kind of looked up to where, like you said, you went, you know, you, you experienced visiting friends that had more. And it's also interesting to see how much of this entire system of oppression that we all navigate at one level or another is based purely on economics. The things that you spoke about, the things that were memorable for lacking, and then the things that altered people that you knew and affected you and affected the people you worked with and your volunteering and everything, all of it kind of boils down to an economic situation. And then everything else applies to that. How do we keep the economic situation in our quote unquote status quo? So everyone acts accordingly to maintain that economic system and that hierarchy. I will say that it's, it's always struck me as strange. The sister that I'm closest with in that way actually thinks most like me, but is 13 years younger than I am. And she had much more than I ever had growing up. And yet she still can appreciate that others don't and to strive to make the world a better place. And, and I want to say this because I think it's really interesting. My brother, who's one of the kindest, most generous people I know, his political views and his understanding of the world has been really shaped in some way that prevents him from seeing 
And, and I really think it prevents him from seeing because I feel like if he could actually allow himself to see it, he, he would be a, he would be the person who would give the shoes off his feet. And I know that the reason he doesn't, he has a very, very nice life. And, and he wants to maintain that because it's a very peaceful, nice life for him. I think that people can have this very nice life and it can be upended by things. And I think the thing we're going through right now is probably going to do that to a lot of people. I don't know where that's going to, where they're going to land. I doubt very much that they're going to land and say, Oh, I see. I should have been giving things away. They're going to be like, how can I grab this back? It's going to be unfortunately the way it will probably play out. But sometimes people do lose things and then start to understand. I was in a conversation, a work conversation yesterday. A colleague said, she only has cellular data. She can't get Wi-Fi where she's at because she's too far off the road. She's got this big piece of land in her house and it's too far off the road. And so she has to pay a lot of money to have Wi-Fi run to her house. And so she said, you know, I really can identify with our students who don't have easy access to the Internet. I'm not sure that she really, really understands what it means. And though she wants to be very kind, I know that she still struggles because she doesn't, she can't see it. Similar to what they were saying about the elections, where white folks allegedly got to feel like for a day what it was for black folks that had to deal with literacy tests and poll taxes and things like this, but that erases every single other aspect of what makes the experience for black folks different than white folks. I know myself that it is a constant battle to keep in my head that I am privileged. I don't have a lot. I'm, I'm not, you know, I just, I'm never going to have a lot. But what I have, I don't want to lose. And when I get in certain situations, I tend to look out for me. And I still do that. I mean, I'm guilty of it all the time. I, I don't think about other people's situations as much. The Instacart example, when I order groceries on Instacart and people who are delivering groceries aren't, I don't know how much they get paid. I don't know, but I can't imagine it's a lot. I do tip very well because I really, really appreciate it. But if something's wrong with the order, I'm going to complain because I, I want it to be right. If I'm paying, and I'm tipping really well, I should get the service that I paid for. But what I'm leaving out is that that complaint, especially if it's over something really small, may have a large impact on that person doing the job. And I was aware of it and I thought about it, but when I talked to you about it the other day, I really thought about it. That was me not being aware. I was thinking about me and not about somebody else. And I think we all do that. I can afford to order my groceries and have them delivered to my house. I don't even have to get in my nice car and drive to the grocery store. I have all kinds of things that have allowed me to even be in that place. Instead of going to the grocery store and possibly getting sick, I'm keeping myself safe. Whereas other people don't even have that option. In fact, many of the people, they're the ones delivering groceries or they're the ones who are working in nursing homes or doing all those other kinds of jobs. I'm able to work from home. 
I'm able to, you know, I have a lot of privilege right now that I've been very cognizant of, actually. I feel very safe. I feel comfortable. You know, work is still hard, but I'm in a whole different place than many, many, many people in this situation. So there's a way to examine just this little piece of our culture, Instacart, and how it plays out for those with and those without. Again, I'd like to take a moment to revisit something you'd brought up earlier. When we talk about institutional racism and the role each of us play, one might say that white folks have mastered the art of living comfortably with their own cognitive dissonance. The argument that you just don't understand it and don't see it. Like you said, you don't see it. When I hear that, it doesn't give human beings enough credit. And it's sort of an intentional slight. It's actually, it's actually a, a beautiful defense mechanism for white folks. You know, they don't see it, they don't see it. And I've heard there's just something that they don't see and it's something that they have to be shown and they have to be illuminated. And honestly, I don't believe that. Recognizing racism is like after you buy a new car, you've never noticed that car before in your life, whatever model it may be. And all of a sudden after you purchase this car, you see it everywhere you look. And really what it is, is it's not so much to see it. Again, it's not that. That's, that's not the, the question and the, and the challenge I was posing. It's to see it and then decide to do something about it and decide that there are certainly people that, not because they are less fortunate, but because our society has intentionally designed their oppression, that I'm going to continue on with that because I benefit from the system that we live within. Yeah, I think that that's a really, really great point. Whenever I've done any kind of social justice work, even in my teaching, the things that I do, I've done in my life to try to make the world a better place, it's really focused on the institutions, on the, the institutionalization of racism, the institutionalization of poverty. It's not about individual people because people in poverty go across race. There are things that people look at and they always think of poor black folks and poor brown folks and so on, but there are a lot of poor folks. And addressing institutionalized racism or poverty makes a lot more sense because it helps everybody and it gets rid of that institution. It was astonishing to me and it wasn't until I got into graduate school that I truly understood it and studied it the institutionalization of racism blew my mind, to use that phrase, because it was written into legal documents, it's put in place in schools, it's everywhere. It's in churches, it's in every institution we can imagine, that ability to separate out by race and demean by race even. It doesn't mean that you can't be kind to people. I'm not saying that. and It's not that I don't feel that that's important or to work even on very small scales sometimes. But you can't just work on that very small scale very locally without addressing the big picture because it will just keep coming back. It just seals it off. It's like trying to poke a hole in some material that is self-sealing. So you get a little hole in it as soon as you take that finger out or that needle out, it closes right up and it's right back. So it's addressing that wall is what has to happen. Something I saw this weekend in Michigan, I'm sure you saw it as well, where there was a state senator 
that wore a mask that resembled a Confederate flag in the state capitol in yeah. session. And you saw, even from the progressive liberal left, a lot of folks going, what I like to say is, you know, look at that racist, look at that racist. So glad I'm not one. But you'll see a lot more of the white solidarity than you will anybody calling out the system that allows for this and, and the thoughts behind this action and the fact that it wasn't a poor choice or a mistake or not something well thought out because you can't live in this country and not understand the meaning behind that action, not just the flag, but the action of wearing it in public as this pandemic is brutalizing the communities that you don't represent. Another thing I, I thought about real quickly, back to what you said before, the things you have, you don't want to give up. And I think that's, again, another one of those issues in the sense of even that it's more the question of sharing than giving up. And are we willing and able to share our material wealth? And in exchange, we would receive things. Yeah. It's like I've always told people, I don't mind paying taxes. I think that paying taxes is better for the whole society. And voting for the school referendum or in whatever form it takes, that I need to think about others and not just me. I don't have any little kids in the school system I'm in. And yet I went and voted for the referendum because I know that our school system really needs help. And it's needed it for many, many years. We've had referendum after referendum after referendum fail. And the fact that it passed by like three or four votes this time, but it passed finally. And the school system will get much needed help, which will make for a better society. It will make for better educated people. It will help kids to grow up and have things that they can do with their life. It makes everything better. And, and that short-sighted kind of look at, yeah, but I'm going to have to pay 23 cents more per thousand dollars on my property taxes. To me, that's always been very selfish. Now, I'm in education, so I understand what it means to be funded. And other people don't have that experience. I believe that the tax system is honestly a way for us, this sense of sharing, as in, if you pay your taxes, you know, you've done what you can as an American citizen to, to help. It's something that sort of leaves us with that dissonance again. I think that's also where religion and churches kind of come into play. There is that sense of, okay, well, I've given so much, so I am a good person, so it's okay that I have this much more. We talked before, and I would consider you a child of the 60s, even though you were born in the 50s. Oh, definitely. I had asked you prior about your years from 11 to 16, because you had spoken about how you kind of separated from your family and your family responsibilities a bit more at 11 when you found friends. And then 16, obviously, you were pregnant and becoming an adult prematurely. So those years just happened to line up, amazingly to me, 1964 to 1969. Well, I, I will say that Kennedy being elected and then being assassinated, that whole time period was really important to me. He was the first Catholic president. I was raised Roman Catholic, so that was really important. In fact, we were given the day off of school the day of his funeral to watch the funeral on television. I got to see Jack Ruby 
assassinate Lee Harvey Oswald live on television. That was a huge thing and was just a really odd Sunday morning. My mother was gone to church and we were doing stuff in the house. We were, had the television on because everybody wanted to watch this thing. They were televising it all. And, and watching that assassination live was very bizarre. The funerals, the, all of that stuff that happened. And then there was um, Robert F. Kennedy's assassination. I was still in grade school. And I remember the day that he was assassinated. And I remember when I found out about it, we were walking down the street on Pearson, my girlfriend and I. We used to listen to transistor radios all the time. So maybe it was a news splash on the radio. I, I don't even remember how we found out. But I remember I was walking down the street with my girlfriend. And it was June, I want to say June 5th, because it was the day before my girlfriend's birthday. And we were shocked. It was horrible because he was getting ready to run for president. And, and we were all very excited about that. I remember Martin Luther King's assassination. And I think that those really affected me. At the same time, I had kind of entered into the hippie world, I would say, and I identified with that. I was, even after I was married and I was still going to high school and I would go to school and I had, you know, I wore long skirts, I wore my hair up in a bun. I had this long maxi coat that I had gotten, you know, so I had this very hippie kind of look. And the school that I went to was not open to hippie world. And I was, I was tormented. I, I would get cornered in the bathroom and made fun of. I would get harassed in the hallway because I looked different. And during that same period of time, I started a friendship with the high school quarterback. And this high school quarterback was an African-American guy. And I don't know how, he wasn't in my classes even, I don't think. I don't know how we became friends. But we would just talk to each other, and I would talk to him in the hallway at school all the time. And I had these regular conversations with him, and everybody loved him because he was the star quarterback. So he was very popular in that way. So I never questioned anything until my cousin called me one night and said, Christine, you have to stop talking to him. And I said, why? And she said, because everybody's talking about you. You can't talk to him. And I knew it was because he was an African-American guy. And I said, that's crazy. Why would I stop talking to him? And I did continue talking to him. It wasn't very much longer after that than I actually got pregnant and I left school. So I lost track of him. And we weren't friends outside of school. I never talked to him outside of the hallways in school because that was more safe to me. My sister worked on the school newspaper and she had befriended an African-American guy that was on her school paper. And he actually asked her out. And when my father found out that he was an African-American, that was completely kibosh. That was not going to happen. And she abided by that. She didn't, she didn't go out with, I think she did go out with him one time, maybe. But, but that relationship didn't happen. So there were a lot of things like that happened in my family. They happened at school. And then my kind of engagement in the, the alternative culture separated me which was probably a lot of, you know, my kind of taking up social justice and protests and 
and those things, that was part of it too, just being accepted into that world. Medgar Evers and Malcolm X also were killed earlier than Martin Luther King Jr. as a white young woman growing up in a Catholic, I'll say middle-class conservative family experience. Do you recall any particular positive and or negative reactions to those assassinations or, or even the movements? Because I know that Martin Luther King, before his death, actually came to the North and came to Chicago and Detroit and cities and met with just as awful resistance as he ever experienced in the South, according to his own words. Um, so I wonder if you remember or can recall anything within your family or your environment where you heard about, you know, people disparaging or, or being positive towards, you know, civil rights and or the movements or the people involved. I think what's notable is that there is nothing positive said. I'm going to back that up just a tiny bit. In my family and in my family experience, I don't remember anything negative being said, but I don't remember anything positive being said. It was like it was not spoken. And that was understood. You didn't talk about those things. I don't remember. I barely maybe remember Malcolm X's assassination, but didn't understand who Malcolm X was. The Black Panthers, that whole movement and all that was very, that was negative culturally. They were terrorists. I mean, that was the way it was portrayed everywhere. And that was my understanding until really until I read Angela Davis. And, and started to understand what the Black Panthers actually were as an organization. But the other thing that happened that was more on the positive end was actually involved with the Catholic Church. And it was the priest who came in. He wasn't the, the main priest. He was the, the young priest, you know, that came in and brought the guitar into mass. It was when the English mass came in. And he was kind of like, almost like the hippie priest, I guess. He, he got in trouble and actually got excommunicated or, or pushed out of the priesthood because he was marrying gay couples. But he was a positive influence on me, somebody that I looked up to because his message was always about social justice. And I took that in. I soaked it up like a sponge. Part of the reason that I joined those other views is because I was accepted into those other views. The groups that were more exclusionary also excluded me often. And so I feel I felt accepted and could be part of that world and had a purpose. And my thoughts were accepted and my ideas and my thinking and my feelings and whatever it was. In the other groups, I was poor, so I didn't belong. Now that I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking out loud and discovering something in my head as we're talking. And something I want to say, I've been thinking about this in this conversation more than ever, that it's my conversations with you that constantly remind me of who I want to be. I, I do have these conversations with other people, but I talk to you about these things more than anything. And it's that constant reminder in these conversations of the world that you are seeking and the world that I want to, that remind me that I have to keep working at this, that there is work still to do and I need to be brave and do it. I see it in the conversations with you because we talk about these things a lot, but I think that that's part of the secret of all of this. And I think back to those 
those groups, that group that I used to be part of, that was the whole idea of getting together and talking about it. If you're not talking about it, it's too easy to just shut it off and ignore it and pretend it's not there. So thank you. It's my pleasure. You spoke about growing up Catholic and how influential the church was during that time. Do you remember any of the churches you attended being integrated or were they all white congregations? <laughs> no, it was not. Integrated in, in this sense. In my whole eight years of grade school, when I was probably most active, and even when I was married and after you were born, the church I belonged to then, they were white churches. In my eight years of school, there was one African-American student that attended during the whole eight years, and she was only there part of one year. I didn't have that experience. When I got to high school, there was some integration there, but the church that I attended then was not integrated. All the churches, there's never been a church that I've been to. When I went to high school, I don't remember any African-American students at my all-girl Catholic high school. The few students that I knew of that were my close friends were actually Hispanic. They were two sisters, and I became very close to them. And their lives and their experience colored my understanding of how different lives can be because their life was different than mine. And so I did not have that experience of integration growing up. I know that's something that Baldwin spoke of, the fact that the most segregated moment in America are Sunday mornings. In addition to inviting folks from different communities to share the unique stories and perspectives with our American table, I thought a great way to celebrate the concept of sharing would be for each guest to bring a favorite dish of their own to share with the listening audience. And I would like to ask you to tell the story as best you can about pinto beans and rice and what that has brought to our life and, and how that came, became part of our life. There are many dishes, and I, I have to say there are several dishes that I think are really important. Chicken and rice. Scottish shortbread has become something that's very important to me as I've recognized my Scottish heritage. But the beans and rice is the dish that I think surprised us all at how much we loved it. It was a dish that was brought to me by my second husband. It's very simple. You cook your beans. When you're cooking the beans, you take a smoked corecock and you put it in. I always added uh, dried oregano and basil, onion, garlic, all of those things go in there. And then you just cook them and cook them and cook them until the meat's falling off that bone and the beans are really soft and mushy. They lose their bean consistency, almost like refried beans. And then the last secret to it is to cut up link sausage, breakfast sausage into thirds and mix it in and let those cook. And then you have this wonderful bean and you put hot sauce on it It's and you serve it over rice. And it is like one of the most amazing flavors ever. What's interesting about the dish is that the dish actually came from his girlfriend that broke up his marriage. She's from Louisiana and she is now his current wife because she broke up our marriage too. It's a dish that even though it has kind of those roots, and, and belongs to this awful part of my life, it became a part of our life. It was a gift that I gave to my children and fed my children. It was really good food. It tasted good. 
we would invite people over to eat this with us. And it's a very poor kind of food. And everybody that ever came to our table and shared those meals with us would want to come back and have it again because it was just that kind of community meal. And I think it's a dish that has been around for a long time. And I didn't understand how that cultural background to it, but the fact that it's existed and has been taken up by many, many people of different classes even has to do with its sustenance and its community sense. It's a community dish and it just makes you feel good and it tastes really delicious. I was glad that we brought that into our family. And among other dishes that we were introduced to, in particular during that relationship, I'd like you to give a reason as to why the simple eating of rice and eating tortillas, why were these things unique in being introduced to us? Well, I think because my second husband was Puerto Rican and was raised Puerto Rican, he came to the States when he was six to New York and lived in New York for a while. Then his mother, who is a single mother with three kids, she came to the Midwest to pick crops. They were migrant workers and he grew up there. So those dishes were passed on by his mother. We ate tortillas a lot. We ate chicken rice. He always talked about chicken rice. The first time I made it for him when we were dating, I made it as a casserole dish. And he said, oh, God, this is not chicken and rice. So he showed me how to make chicken rice, which, again, is a very simple kind of peasant food. It's just taking chicken and, and stewing it in tomatoes, tomato sauce, some green peppers, and oregano and basil and onion and garlic, very simple staple foods, and serving it over rice. It was very important to have the tortillas as part of that. So I think what we've done in our family, and it, it's like all families, you know, you bring things in and then they become part of your family. And, and one thing I'd like to sort of illuminate with that is, is just the idea of the American table and how it is actually made up of dishes and cultures and communities and people that were never considered the original Americans. Food is an area, and it's kind of strange, but food is an area where I think that there can be, people can come to the table. It's really kind of a strange thing, and I hadn't really thought of it that way. I think of my sister-in-law, who's Korean, who brought her Korean food to our family that everybody loves and looks forward to and helped her connect with us when she first came from Korea. So it's, it's interesting. Food plays a really huge role. You'd spoken about something that brings you closer to your own heritage, and if you wanted to talk about that and the importance. Sure. Growing up, I really didn't have many cultural foods. I mean, we ate meat and potatoes. We ate hamburger gravy a lot. We ate what we called goulash, which was just elbow macaroni spaghetti kind of dish thing. We ate cabbage rolls. My mother would make those, but it wasn't part of our heritage because I didn't have Polish or Eastern European in my background. But when I got a little bit older, I always loved Lorna Dune cookies, which are kind of a shortbread cookie. And when I realized that shortbread cookies, which are my very favorite kind of cookie, um, were actually Scottish, I became fascinated by that and I started making them. And they're actually very labor intensive, the way I make them. 
because I make them with two knives because you have to cut the flour into the butter or the butter into the flour so that it's every little granule of flour or butter is coated and you know there's just little tiny balls of flour butter and then you add the sugar and there's no egg in it which is why they're called shortbread and you press them into the pan and you bake them you can't make a lot at a time because like i said it's very labor intensive it's very hard on the arms doing that now i have used a pastry cutter sometimes to make it you can't do it with a mixer because the mixer will glom it up and it doesn't cut in the same way so you actually have to cut it in. It's like doing pastry, but it's even worse in that sense. They're so delicious and they're so rich. You can only eat a very small amount of them. By the time I discovered them, you and your sister were already out of the house. So I never taught you how to make them really. The first person that I actually taught how to make them was one of my nephews, one of your cousins. He wanted to know how to do it, and, and I taught him one Sunday or Saturday afternoon or something at Grandma's house how to make shortbread. And then the other person that I taught was Zachary, because when he was in high school, he needed to bring a cultural food to school, and that's what we decided we would do. So we not only made the shortbread, but he made them in the shape of the famous castle in Scotland. And he brought them into school and he was very proud of them. So that was really cool. I don't make them very often because like I said, they're very rich, they're fattening. And if I make a pan of them, I will eat the whole thing because I love them very much. Sometimes I will make them as my cultural contribution. I more often make pecan pies, but um, because they're a lot easier to make and people think they're really hard to make and they're not. But it's that tie back to Scotland and when I've researched my family and, and seen that, that's been something important to me. I haven't passed that on to my other kids or to my grandkids. And so it's something I've thought about and something I want to do in the future because whether they like them or not, and everybody doesn't like shortbread cookies, it's important to me. If they, if they taste anything like the Girl Scout cookies, I'm in. They're way better, I think. Way better. A little bit of vanilla. They're very rich. The ones that are closest to it are that one brand, the plaid brand. I can't remember what they're called. They're closest to them, but they never taste as fresh and as good. You have to use really good butter and flour, and they're just delicious. I'll make some. Perhaps it is some Scottish taste bud, but shortbreads have always been my favorite, if not one of my two or three favorites among the Girl Scout cookies over the years. I can eat a sleeve of them in a sitting. <laughs> oh, yeah. I tried putting them in the freezer once to stop from eating them. They're even better when they're in the freezer. <laughs> so that didn't work. And actually, I've had Girl Scout cookies recently, but since I started making my own, I don't like them as much because they don't taste as good. It is my favorite. And maybe the reason that you like them is because that is the kind of Girl Scout cookie I would buy when I bought Girl Scout cookies when you were a kid. So you did have those, or I would buy Lorna Dune cookies because I, I really love that flavor. So that probably is where you picked it up from. I was thinking about another food that came into our family, and that was, I think we talked about before, from your grandmother on your father's side, because I made pierogies from scratch. And I only did it once, and I've always wanted to go back and make them again. And I would love to make them with you sometime. I think that would be really fun. I also learned to make tamales which was another cultural food that came from my second husband. We made those together and they were wonderful. And they really aren't that hard to make. It just takes time. You have to have all the ingredients. I thought about that as you were talking about 
foods and influences. I remember you making them in, in the house in Racine. When we made them, we made three different flavors. We had some with ground turkey. We made some with venison. And we made some with ground beef. It was like a big project. And we spent the whole day doing it. You know, you've got to get the masa. You have to steam the corn husks. And it was really such a fun production. And your Aunt Carol was there with us because she was engaged at the time. And I gave a whole bunch of them to her husband to use for his bachelor party. And they ate them for the bachelor party. It was a great snack to have. Unfortunately, he had so much to drink that night. He's never been able to eat them since. That it, He got very sick. And it, and it was unfortunate. It ruined his taste for tamales. What you mentioned before was soon. I'd forgotten to also say that she brings the dish kimbab with the nori and all. And, and it's either a love or hate kind of thing for most folks. And I absolutely love them. Yeah, her foods that, that she's introduced to our family too have, right. have, have definitely changed the palate of many yeah. a Scottish McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, she makes wonderful egg rolls. She makes bugoki. I made kimchi with her once, or her mother was making it. I ate kimchi with her. I didn't really make it. But her kimchi was so hot. It was unreal, but it was so delicious. She makes uh, curried potatoes, a curried potato dish. She makes a lot of things that are really wonderful. One thing I want to touch on is if you could briefly discuss what you know of your ancestry. My ancestry, I'm half Scottish. My grandparents on my father's side were both Scottish. There are probably a few other strains in there. They, they came from Canada. I think there's a little French in there, French Canadian perhaps in part of my family somewhere. But most of the history that I've been able to do, on my, on my mother's side, I'm German. I think that there's some Dutch in there, some of that kind of Northern European, but it's a little bit of a mix and I don't really have a good ancestry on that side. On my father's side though, I was able to go back on my paternal grandmother's side, way, way back and follow my ancestry back to like ancient Scotland almost. It was crazy. I couldn't believe I could find all that because there were records. On my father's side, it stops with my great-grandfather. But my grandmother and my grandfather grew up in the same area in Canada and their families knew each other. They weren't baptized in the same churches. Part of the reason I'm able to find the information that I can find is that in Canada, all of their records are public domain. You don't have to pay for them. You don't have to. It's all part of, they just, they're just open. Um, a lot of them are church records, baptismal records, birth records, funeral records, marriage records, you know, all of that stuff was kept in the churches. The reason it kind of got lost to my grandfather's side was because the church that housed those burned down and they lost all those records. My five-time back great-grandmother is buried in that churchyard. She came over on the ship, we believe, with the McDonald and she was married very young. Her husband was very young. They were married in Canada at that church or what became that church. And then my grandparents both emigrated here during the depression to find work. They came separately, even though they knew each other. My 
grandmother and all of her sisters emigrated here. My grandfather was dating her sister, went to the door to pick her up, and my grandmother answered the door, and that was the end of that. He fell in love with my grandmother and married her. My great-grandfather was a piper, and I have a picture of him with his bagpipe, and he spent some time out west in Montana or Wyoming or something, and got in some kind of trouble out there and then came back. I think they were always looking for work. On my grand, my mother's side, my grandfather, who was born in 1871, I think, he went out west when he was 13. He was sent out west to herd sheep, became a blacksmith. I have more of the sense of the Scottishness because that was very strong on that side. And my family was very much engaged in their Scottish heritage. I wasn't so much when I was a kid growing up even though I knew they were. Some of my cousins and such have gone to Scotland. My parents went to Scotland. I've never been there, but I would like to go there. But I was a McDonald's, so McDonald's are like Smiths in, in the United States. Everybody in Scotland's a McDonald's, in the Highland area anyway. One of the commonly accepted ways to refer to Black folks is African Americans. And I would like to ask why people that essentially identify as white, we're never referred to as European Americans. Asian Americans are clearly Asian Americans. Mexican Americans are Mexican Americans. But whether we came, we could come from Russia, which would be Asia, and, and we wouldn't be Asian Americans. We come over and we are, at some point in time, deemed Americans. And that's the end of it. There's no prefix to Americans, no nationalizing of Americans. How could you possibly explain that? I don't know that I have any good explanation for it. I know that the term African-American arose in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, as a way struggling, trying to find a term that could be owned. Owning the word queer was important to the gay community at, at a point because to take something means that somebody can't use it against you. And I think that's the argument that's used for the N-word in the African-American community. But I think it's based on color. And that's why it maintains. I mean, Italian-Americans kept that for a long time, often because they were not considered white. Irish, when they first came, which is really kind of hard to imagine, were not considered white. They were like the lowest of the low. The only ones below them were people with black or brown skin, but they eventually blended in and just became part of the white community. I don't really have a good answer. I, I don't know if there is one. W.E. Du Bois talks about when he lived in Massachusetts as a child and how he distinctly remembered that the Irish were actually a lower social caste mm -hmm. than the black folks in Massachusetts. Yeah. His family was considered a, a higher social class than the Irish that were in town. I think with Du Bois, it was partly because he came from a different class almost than the Irish around him would have at that point in that place. So I think that that's true, that there could have been places, and it didn't save him from discrimination because he still was a black man. It's understandable 
why they would seek something. And, and, and like you said, I mean, something to own because they feel as if they cannot simply say, I'm an American. And something that kind of set me straight on that, I guess, I was reading recently and it kind of dawned on me why when black folks write about the conditions and their experience here in the United States, they began by identifying the folks that were here as the Americans because they were the Africans, literally. But even as they were here, and, and I thought of this prior, and that's why I kind of asked you about your story of your ancestry and heritage, is to think that my great-grandparents, your grandparents, and your, and your parents, your, your father in particular, as you said, you know, have a strong Scottish heritage, yet when they came to the United States, correct me if I'm wrong, they were Canadian citizens. Correct. They had never been born in Scotland, but yet as they came here, from Scotland to Canada to America, I would imagine that as quickly as they learn to assimilate and to blend into the American culture, they were assigned the American title. And again, you say yourself, it comes down to skin color. And while our ancestors knew the road to acceptance was to become more American, today's intellectuals would have us believe that black folks born and raised in the United States of America were acting of their own free will and looking back to Africa to find an identity they could call their own, as opposed to what they're being prevented from being able to do. And that there were forces that were actually causing them to even feel that they weren't Americans and to feel as if they needed to find something to hold on to. It wasn't as if they had everything and they reached out to Africa because most black folks understand they are not African. They, they were born here in America. They were raised here in America. Their ancestors, generations back, were born and raised here in America. They are of an African descent, but they are not in any way, shape, or form African. And the idea that that would be their home today is as foreign to them as it would be to us. Mm -hmm. But yet we are Americans and they are forced to find an identity because they were denied the right to call themselves Americans. But even as they are, they are not. Correct. You know, it's funny because people that were coming over from Scotland weren't coming over because, oh, let's go to America. That'll be really great. They were leaving Scotland because they were forced out during the clearances. And so they were forced to come here and find another life. My family is not a family of wealth on either side of my family. They were farmers. They were, you know, they were laborers. But they still were able to call themselves Americans. Absolutely. Your other point about your family and your heritage and everything brings me to my last question, series of questions. In what you'd been describing throughout your life and stories through your life and people you'd encountered and experiences, you speak quite a bit about your family, your neighborhoods, people you knew, suffering. The man that you went back and visited who had a home valued at several thousands of dollars, the man that lived his life in his house, he saw that there were drug dealers in his neighborhood, and yet you could probably go to most of those folks, and they would probably say in a heartbeat that they were proud Americans, despite their lot in life. You can go down the lines, you can look at the, the stagnated wages, drug addiction, mental health, women's rights. We're, we're dealing with now coronavirus, where the average American cannot get a test if they felt they were unhealthy, or they may be sick. If you think of all these things, and all the things that we've experienced and the people in our lives have experienced, how do you feel 
that the institutional racism and systemic racism of this country has impacted white folks of this country, folks that live and go to school and public education systems and for the most part are employed among black folks, among Latinos, among Asian Americans and other groups, and yet always have this sense of supremacy and carry this within themselves, despite if they, if they were able to step outside themselves and look around, they would realize that they are literally economically, for the most part, very little, if at all, better off socially, very, very little upward mobility in the social circles. Their healthcare is diminished and getting worse. The drug addictions are going up. The suicides are going up among white Americans, I'm speaking. If you could speak to white folks in America, is it worth the price of the ticket? No. When I was teaching literature, which I used often to talk about these things, when you looked at race, gender, and class, (laughs) despite the fact of those who were the oppressors, so whatever group it was in those binaries, whether it was the white over people of color, whether it was men over women, whether it was rich over poor even, the middle class always felt if you were white and middle class and male especially, you had the upper hand in those, but it was always a false dichotomy because really, even if you were looking at those as as a dichotomy, there was somebody else up above that was that had it over everybody and they were usually white and male I will say that but they fooled people in the middle or men that would think that that being in charge and having these rights that women whining about wanting to have equality and having equal pay if you have equality everybody benefits but who has to give it up are those people way up on top and as long as you think that you have it better Those people way up on top never have to give up a thing. And so the people who are thinking that they've got it all going on that are in the middle are really just barely above in any sense, anybody else. And they're being squashed. And we see it now more and more because of course the middle class is now disappearing and is being squashed even farther down. But no matter until they are completely under the ground, they will not believe that they are being duped in any way, that they're being fooled into thinking that they have something, that they can get something. That whole idea of the American dream, that if you work hard and if you do all these things, you're gonna get this. It's like a carrot that's hanging out here that hardly anybody can get to. We get those few people that make, you know, make, you know, get wealthy and, and, and win the lottery, so to speak. But there are so few. And then they get, the air gets thinner and thinner up there and the people down here are in the muck. It's a game, it's a con. And I've taught that. I always wanted students to understand that holding somebody down does not benefit you in the long run. It is not worth the price of the ticket because it makes you ugly. When I taught slavery, that's where I was able to really talk about it. I said, those slave masters, they had all these people and they got wealthy over labor over labor, over forced labor, they've got wealthy. But their lives were not good. They were not good because of it. They weren't happy. And the only way they could justify it is to say that those people weren't human. 
So you have to dehumanize others to make it work. It's not worth the price of the ticket. Not at all. When they talk about all the effort and dollars, of course, personnel and everything like that, that the institutions of the United States have invested in oppressing people. Imagine if all of that investment in oppressing people was instead funneled into programs to uplift people. It would be world-changing. It's amazing to me that we've all been conditioned that that would be less desirable than to hope you're that one in a million. Right. I'd like to transition now from reflecting on the past to looking forward to a better tomorrow and to ask what your hopeful vision of our American table would look like in the year 2050, and if you could offer any ideas on how to improve cross-cultural relationships along the way. My vision has always been that there can be an easy flow between cultures and a, and a gaining from other cultures. There's so much that I still don't know about other cultures, and, I, and I'm a, a learner, I'm, a, I'm constantly curious. And I don't mean that in some kind of like curiosity, you know, like exotica thing. I'm just saying there's so much that I have gained from other cultures over my life that I would, I would wish that that could happen more easily. I work with a lot of African-American people right now in my job. And I went to a, a party, an end of semester party, Zoom party the other day, and I did not feel like I belonged. They had Jazzy Jeff DJ. So he was the DJ and it was something that was recorded that was playing. And he was giving out a lot of messages about staying safe, washing your hands. And some of the music I liked, they had one of the songs had a lot of Stevie Wonder in it, which I really liked because I grew up with Stevie Wonder. So I liked that. But a lot of it I couldn't identify with. I didn't feel part of it. And I didn't feel part of the group. And it's unusual for a white person to be in a group anywhere and not feel like they're part of the group but it was very noticeable. And my three white colleagues that I work with, we talked about it afterwards and we all felt the same thing because most of the people that were there in that party were African-American. They were playing music that was like house party music that they knew and enjoyed and was comfortable for them, was not comfortable for me because I didn't feel part of the group. I was wondering if your colleagues that you had the conversation with afterwards that were your white colleagues, did anybody recognize the fact that what you experienced was essentially akin to what black folks experience in college campuses all over the United States? Right. And if you had that conversation going, well, you know what, we can't feel too bad because higher education, unless you're going to historically black colleges, is a pretty white world. Right. And so that was kind of funny hearing you say that it's sort of like the role reversal in a sense. And Absolutely. I would not want that to happen for anybody. I wish it was just a more free-flowing, and it's always going to be when you have cultures come together, it's always going to be some kind of discomfort. But, but how you bridge that or how you can get across that, unless it's part of your family. I know when my sister-in-law soon came into our family, I think she felt very uncomfortable because she understood English. She didn't feel she spoke it very well, so she wouldn't speak. Everything that we did or ate or everything was foreign to her. It felt really uncomfortable, but our family accepted her very quickly, and then we were able to do that cultural exchange, and it's happened over the years, and it's been wonderful. It can happen in those small ways, but how do you, how do you make that work? I don't know. 
I think bringing people together for meals may be a way to do it. If there was some formalized way of actually creating an American table where people would come in and exchange their culture through food would be an awesome thing. I, I, I don't know. That's funny because as I was talking about different ideas for this podcast, Christine, my wife, she had spoken about that because I had talked about the idea of gathering people. And I'd even spoken with you a little bit about it before that as reticent as I would be, I thought of actually starting in places of worship, introducing myself and talking to people in churches and communities of faith and trying to find a way through that. Because if nothing else, people that are going to church at least aspire to do good and things like that. Now, half of them may be going to ask for forgiveness for all their sins, but whatever it is, at least there's a portion of them that are altruistic in their trips to church. And so I thought that would be a good community to kind of start the idea of integrating the churches of America. And not not like I'm going to bring all the churches together tomorrow and they're all going to be together, but one church at a time, communicating with one and communicating with another one of a different community entirely, trying to convince the two of them to eventually join for a dinner and just come together in a common space and just have a dinner and bring your culture and your community to the dinner. And this other church would bring their culture and their community to the dinner. Everybody checks their ego at the door, however you want to put it, and just sits down and is open to that idea. In closing, I would like to ask for your thoughts on how America has changed throughout your lifetime. I was at something, this is a couple of years ago, and there was, there was a black man that was talking, and he was older. He had been around in the, during the civil rights movements of the 60s, and he had said how he sensed that there was a change in the youth of today. The young people today are not going to allow this to occur and are not going to allow this to happen and things of that nature. And I'm too young to have been there during the 60s and the civil rights movement. As I hear him speak and, and discuss this, I have to ask the question, what is it that has not changed that we're still at that same point? What part of our society has not changed? Or what part of our society has decided that what was in the 50s and 60s was all right? Because there haven't been any movements to, to make any change. What do you see as a cause that we're, we're still having this conversation and we're still having podcasts and we're still having all these conversations about how we are going to come together as one? Wow, that's a big, big question. I think I see differences from when I was a child to now, but it seems so incremental because the feelings are still there and the ability for people to still step on other people are still there. It's very difficult for people to be accepted, to be not judged because of the color of their skin. It's very easy for women to be dismissed. It's difficult for people to get jobs because it's who you know. And those things are very hard to combat. You can put laws in place to try and make things equal, but then people think that that's being unfair and that people are getting jobs that they shouldn't be getting. But I can tell you that I've seen it so many times still to this day where those, those things are still happening. And I can see it in people's remarks. I can see it in their attitudes. People are blind to it. People still don't see that it's still an issue. And they look at it and they say, oh, well, those people and they're, you know, this group and that group. 
and we have to protect ourselves and we have to protect our families and we have to protect our property. It happens on a personal level and it happens at the institutional level. And those things are still all in place. When I'm walking with a guy that I've known for many years and he hears somebody speaking to someone else in a different language and says under his breath, speak English. Are you kidding me? Where do you get off saying something like that? And these are just people who think that they're good people and they're fine people. They don't recognize all these little things that they do and the way that they think day in and day out about groups, about cultures, about gender, about sexuality, about about everything. How much of that do you believe is really essential for them to justify the way they see people being treated and the way society treats them and the way society expects them to treat people? That's really where the, where the crux of the issue is, is in getting those that are empowered to simply see other people as human beings. Yes. And the thing is, when I think of that particular person that said that that day, who's been able to make a good life for himself, worked in a factory, was able to retire well, be comfortable, has a nice home, has all kinds of toys. He's been able to do well for himself. He came from poor. I mean, his family was poor. I know that. But he was able to do that and get to this level where he feels he can judge other people in that way. But the other part that I think is really more deadly if you want to call it that, or destructive, is the way he votes. Because he carries that into the voting booth and he votes for the people that will protect him from those people that don't know to speak English in this country. The people he puts in power are the very same people who will chase people out of our country, who will demean people, who won't pass laws that will protect groups. It's the exact same person. And he does it because he's been convinced that that's going to protect him. And allowing people to not speak English is somehow going to hurt him. You'll hear that phrase, they vote against their best interest. But in a one-word answer, what is being protected? Their whiteness. And so with that, I would like to say that this has been an honor. It was wonderful, and I can't wait to publish, as they call it, publish my first podcast featuring a conversation with my mom. Well, I feel honored that I was your first guest. And I've, as I said, I've always enjoyed these conversations with you because you make me think. And, and I like to think sometimes I want to be lazy and not think. So continuing these conversations throughout our life have really helped me to keep, to keep thinking. And it's important to me. And I'm really looking forward to this idea Although this whole coronavirus thing is so crazy because I was thinking, oh, that's such a great idea. We should get people together and have this meal. I said, well, we can't, at least not now. I would like to thank all of you for listening to the world premiere of Our American Table, the podcast, featuring a conversation with Christine McDonald. I hope you have enjoyed our discussion and perhaps learned a thing or two. I know I have. Rest assured, my father will not be my next guest. However, our American Table, the podcast, will continue to discuss the difficult, important issues of our time, subjects only found beyond our immediate view. 
I believe the key to human beings discovering the answers that generate new ideas and improve our world is by introducing, pondering, and debating these topics with great minds. And this still being my podcast, What I Say Goes. Until we meet again, this is Eric Fanning wishing you a wonderful today and a better tomorrow. And don't forget, mask it or casket. Peace.